Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. I'm Talia Bacassis. And I'm Kim France. Today's guest is Andy Zeisler, author of the fantastic book, We Were Feminists Once, From Riot Girl to Cover Girl, The Buying and Selling of a Political Movement. She's contributed to Mother Jones, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Ms., and other publications. And she's also the co-founder of Bitch Media which includes the fabulous Bitch magazine, a scrappy feminist publication that has managed to survive and thrive in an era when magazines are struggling to even exist. Um, I only discovered Bitch fairly recently, and I feel like they've got all these really great lists also of like 15 feminist books you should be reading right now, feminist movies you should be watching right now. And it feels like feminism as a concept almost is under attack in this day and age and it is a very relevant thing to be talking about and re-examining and reasserting about ourselves. <laughs> so hi Andy. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about how Bitch came to be? Yeah, um, Bitch came to be when one of my high school friends, this was 1995, both of us had interned at Sassy at different times. So I was there and around the time that we started talking about doing Bitch was when uh, Sassy was bought by the publishing company that published like Guns and Ammo mm -hmm. and like Teen Magazine <laughs> and it became what we called like Bizarro Zombie Sassy. Like it was really trying to it was trying to capture that voice, but it just failing miserably. Mm -hmm. And at the time that I was interning at Sassy, Ms. Magazine was a few floors up. And I remember I was always being sent up there to get um, old issues for reference. Hmm. And that was really when I started reading Ms. because my, my mother was not, she was much more a Vogue person than a Ms. person. And so Lisa and I started, we were huge fans of pop culture, but we also spent a ton of time just talking about 
how ill-served women and particularly young women were by pop culture representations and as creators of popular culture. So yeah, we started talking about how great it would be and how much we would have wanted like a magazine that that really blended Sassy and Ms. Because Sassy did a lot of, you know, explicitly feminist stuff, like using the word feminist. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time we started Bitch, Ms. had, uh, they seemed to have moved on to thinking pop culture was sort of sort of silly. And that's not to say that it, was, it wasn't a great magazine in 1995, but it did feel a little bit more like homework. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was like, what if we had an actual magazine that sort of, that identified pop culture as kind of a locus of feminist analysis? Mm. And that was the start of it. We really were sort of thinking big. Um, we started as a zine, but we always had the kind of like pipe dream of, well, maybe one day <laughs> we'll be a real magazine. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was kind of the start of it. I mean, it, it grew pretty organically. But if you define zines as something that's done for love and not money, I think in many ways, Bitch has remained a zine mm-hmm. <laughs> in both sort of financial and, uh, you know, the, the spirit of it. You know, it's it's never been something that we saw as a mainstream magazine. Mm-hmm. And why did you call it bitch? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good question. I think, um, so Lisa and I both grew up in, in New York City and we were just very used to hearing that word in the most sort of quotidian of places, you know, like mm-hmm. walking down the street if you got catcalled and you didn't smile or you didn't acknowledge who was catcalling you, you know, they'd, they'd call you a bitch or they'd shout it after you. And through our high school and college years, we had also witnessed the way that uh, young women spoke up in ways that were interpreted as hostile to men or the idea that basically women who wanted to make a point or have their voices heard or, uh, or counter something that a man was saying bitch was kind of the go-to. You know, there are so many, like, non-gendered insults that you can use. Mm -hmm. But the idea that when the subject is a woman, it's always like zero straight to bitch. Mm -hmm. Um, We really felt that that was a kind of universal experience. It's like reclaiming a word the way that they've done with other words. Right. We had watched the way, like, queer had been reclaimed by the LGBT community, the the sort of in-your-face reclamation it felt really powerful um Mm -hmm. and because bitch was not in common parlance at that time the way it is now it really did feel more potent Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. call a feminist magazine bitch almost as if we were you know saying well we expect (laughs) just by doing this project that we will be called bitches. So let's just go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Let's like not let you have that satisfaction. Let's do Uh it first. We call ourselves (laughs) that. So don't worry about it. (laughs) Do you think millennials are interested in feminism at all? I'm always amazed that they don't even seem to care that their reproductive rights are being stripped away even as we speak. Are you talking about millennials yeah. or are you talking about Gen Z? Wait because a minute. millennials are like pushing 40 at this point. Like- right. But also millennials, I, the millennials that I know are very engaged. My sister-in-law, actually, sorry, is she Gen Z? If somebody in their 20s, are they millennials or Gen Z? I think they're Gen Z. 
Oh. Well, she's Gen Z and she's incredibly engaged. She's one person, but I mean... I just wonder where the voices are around the women governing their own bodies. And I feel like it's all coming from women my age. Hmm. I mean, I definitely think it's there, but they are, you know, from my perspective, and I, you know, I work with a couple of Gen Z people and I certainly edit a lot of them. Um, They are coming from a much more intersectional place that isn't, it's not single issue. It's kind of the acknowledgement that, talking about access to abortion is also a conversation about poverty and environmental mm-hmm. racism and the absolute rigged game of, of capitalism. So I think it's a little more diffuse maybe than mm-hmm. uh, the sort of pro-choice activism that we grew up with where, you know, it was very specifically about that access. Something that I find interesting in terms of the way that a lot of Gen Z and certainly millennial people talk about these issues is that they see it through very personal lenses, which is, I think, the way a lot of older generations also saw it, but did not feel really empowered to speak out from that lens. I I feel like I sound like such an old person saying the young people. (laughs) When the youth... When I they feel like an about... old person when you said millennials are pushing 40. I was like, what? Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah. I don't know. I guess to answer your question, Kim, they're, they're certainly engaged. It's just, it looks different. It's a, it's a different sort of matrix. Right. And maybe they're on places that we don't see. True. Like they're on Snapchat Oh, yeah. They're on wherever. TikTok for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, I didn't even <laughs> like Snapchat. Yeah. I mean, yeah. TikTok. Uh, TikTok. See, <laughs> look at me. I know. That's, like, that's Generation X, like old brain. <laughs> I know. That's like what my mom would say. Tic Tac. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that that is where I think um, I think a lot of sort of Gen Z people are sort of congregating, finding community and finding their sort of, you know, their gateway to feminism the way like spin magazine and sassy were my gateways to feminism right and it make i mean when you think about what they did to that trump rally on tiktok it is kind of amazing Uh, yeah totally yeah true okay i'm not giving them enough credit (laughs) i guess i'm not um you've said andy that even though you feel lucky that bitch is still around you're sad it still has to be around can you explain that well you know i think it's a magazine that has always been about um, making the case that popular culture and media are really important places, really important sites of, of feminist inquiry. You know, as a mission-driven publication that was about, you know, sort of making feminism more accessible to a greater number of people, you know, we wanted to put ourselves out of business. We wanted to get to a place where feminism was part of the landscape mm in enough ways that uh, people did not feel starved for content. I I think we've (laughs) we've gotten to that place, but it it certainly hasn't, you know, it certainly doesn't look like what we hoped it might look like. And I think that speaks a lot to our naivete and sort of youthful hubris. 
we weren't thinking like, oh, feminism is going to become trendy and be, you know, co-opted by the forces of capitalism. We were thinking more like everyone will start, you know, seeing things through a feminist lens. And mm -hmm. I think the latter part of that in many ways has happened. Like there are so many uh, places where you see feminist lenses being applied to, you know, movies or television in a way that they never would have been in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of a feeling of wanting to be obsolete, um, hmm. yeah, <laughs> but, <yeah>. al <laughs> but also wanting to have made a difference. And I think in terms of feminism and its kind of trendiness and popularity, we have certainly been a part of making that happen, but that's not necessarily the thing that we would want to claim, you know? Right. It's like any kind of activism, I guess, where you would like the thing that you were protesting or speaking out against didn't exist and you wish you didn't have to do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you talk about what you refer to in your book as empowertizing? Empowertizing is, is basically the strain of advertising that rather than using shame to sell products to women, it uses this sort of vague notion of empowerment, which in the past couple of decades has become kind of this mad lib word that people will sort of pop in. And again, much like feminism itself, it's become this word that, you know, media outlets will sort of pop in where it, it really doesn't belong in a way that sort of reframes things. So, you know, like every Women's History Month, every year in March, there's, you know, sort of these ridiculous rebranding efforts that last for, you know, one day, like McDonald's mm -hmm. one year, like flipping the M into a W for women, right. oh, uh, but God. like not doing anything about, you know, the class action sexual harassment suits. So it's, it's sort of a way to sort of launder um, brands, public image without actually standing for any change and without actually walking the walk. So like greenwashing, but for, for feminism. Yes, definitely. Once I read that you wrote that, I started to see it everywhere. There was a campaign just a few days ago. It was like six or eight full-page New York Times ads that were for Oil of Olay with like very empowering messages about being a scientist and you know being educated and being all these things. And it was just, it was for Oil of Olay. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think the sort of first brand that really made hay of, of that was Dove. With thank their, you, thank you. Yeah, with mm -hmm. their Real Bodies campaign. And, you know, that was, what, probably like 15 years ago at this point. But yep. do you remember what a huge deal that was when oh, people yeah. were like, billboards with women who are size 12? Like, <laughs> what is this sorcery? You know, like people <laughs> really uh, <laughs> thought that was just absolutely the bravest, boldest move and didn't really seem to or didn't admit to understanding that the product itself was like firming cream. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but Kim, you said that you found that ad disingenuous. And I, I don't know, I also feel like the flip side of that is that it's showing different women's bodies on big billboards. And that does have an upside. It does have an upside. But in the end, it's all the sell shit. It's mm. just all to sell shit. And in the minute it stopped working, they moved on to something else. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, and they and they managed to keep it running for a while because yeah. they were literally creating products based on problems that, you know, women did not actually realize they had until Dove pointed at pointed <laughs> it out. Like the whole one with like turn armpits into underarms. Like that is a part of my body that I had really never thought <laughs> to be concerned with, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I was like, "Okay, so you've created this idea that women's underarms are not, you know, smooth enough or sexy enough. And you just happen to have this new deodorant Mm. that's going to, you know, help that. That is, that's wildly disingenuous. And, um, you know, I think despite the fact that they did very, you know, canny ads that were meant to go viral and did go viral, Mm -hmm. they were able to sort of use that, again, to sort of cover up what they were actually doing. I always want to be a fly on the wall in those meetings where somebody's like, what about armpits? You know, (laughs) (laughs) nobody seems very upset about those. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Relatedly, you've said that feminism can never truly be glamorous or fun. So why is that? And why do you think certain women need a side order of glamour (laughs) with their feminism? Well, I mean, to be clear, I think feminism can be glamorous. It certainly can be made glamorous. There have always been avatars of feminism or or figureheads who have been glamorous. Um, But the concept itself is never going to be glamorous because it really is about making a case for very unsexy things. You know, it's not about, it's not about leaning in and, and claiming the corner office. It's about women who are stuck in minimum wage jobs in states that are making it increasingly hard for them to get access to like birth control, but which are also, you know, trying to outlaw abortion. Like it's a lot of stuff that I think it's very inconvenient for a lot of people, particularly those in power, to reckon with that there's a ton of inequality and very few people who are actively trying to fix it. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, it's just it's not fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think, I think one of the things about feminism over the years is that there's really been this effort to make it palatable mm-hmm. to an audience of people who aren't feminists in the hope that they'll come around and be like, oh, well, now I see that, you know, feminism is actually necessary now that I've, you know, seen it in an energy drink. <laughs> you know, let's be real. Those are the pe- those people were never going to care anyway, you know? So it's it's just sort of a a vicious cycle. Well, what do you say to women who won't define themselves as feminists? Like there are some people who are allergic to the word. I've never really understood that. I've certainly been honing those responses for most of my life. And you know, I think there are definitely ways to point out the way that what they believe is compatible with feminism and that the opportunities they have and the opportunities they want to have have been really made possible by feminism. But, you know, I I think in a lot of ways in the past half decade or so, it's been flipped a little bit in the sense that feminism has become a label that people want to claim because it Mm. is sort of not, you know, not glamorous, but it's a label that has a kind of cultural cachet in some ways that may not be specifically about activism, but about sort of the trappings of feminism, like an aesthetic of feminism. 
Did you watch Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearing? I didn't. I actually didn't watch them. I kept sort of uh, turning on live streams and then just immediately, like immediately having to pop out because it, it was just it was raising my blood pressure. It was so frustrating to know that this is happening and that this is all theater, you know? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> my impression of her is that, you know, every time she was being questioned, she sort of looked like like a tiny bomb had just gone off in her head. Like she had this very like wide-eyed, surprised look and, you know, was refusing to answer questions. Yeah, I dipped in and out of it also. I didn't really, I couldn't really handle it. Well, you're you're so lucky to live in Canada. Oh my gosh. No kidding. <laughs> Does everyone want to marry you? <laughs> Andy, that was the funniest yeah. tweet anybody has ever tweeted the other week when you tweeted, will somebody from a boring country please marry me? Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I didn't mention that, you know, it would have to be a throuple and that I would actually have to talk my partner into it. Um, but really, I mean, who hasn't been having those thoughts? I mean, you know, of course, I'm going to stay and I'm going to fight. But would I turn it down if someone was like, hey, you know, come to New Zealand for a year and uh, live in my farmhouse? And I don't know. I know. Like, it's very appealing. <laughs> I'm not going to turn it down. Like, I just want to be somewhere where I do not have to think, like where I don't have to kind of have 59 seconds out of every minute of my life occupied in some way by the anger and the fear and the anxiety of this country and this administration. Like, I feel like I would have so much of my brain back and that would, you know, that would be great. (laughs) (laughs) Can you describe what you call marketplace feminism and also tell us what the problem is with marketplace feminism? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think I touched on this a little bit with empowerizing, but um, I mean, marketplace feminism has always existed. It's a way to sort of leverage the values of feminism, the language of feminism, the imagery of feminism to sell things to people. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it happened in the 1920s with cigarettes. Uh, it happened in the 1960s with, you know, perfume or sweaters it happened in the 80s, sort of undercover of the kind of greed is good, Jane Fonda workout. But uh, is there a problem with, like, let's say I am the kind of person who would buy a shirt that says Je suis féministe or something like that. Like if it was cool and it was nicely designed, like I, I'm a sucker for that. I don't think marketplace feminism as something that sort of people participate in is necessarily bad, but it is sort of what it represents. It is sort of about turning feminism into something you are or something you wear rather than something you do. Right. And Mm. certainly when you see like high fashion brands like Christian Dior, you know, advertise a plain white t-shirt that says whatever it said, feminism is the future and charge $700 for it. You know, (laughs) who is that for? You know? Right. Um, are you really trying to convince women who have that kind of money to spend on a t-shirt that feminism is valid? Because if they do have that kind of money, 
and they're already not on board, you know, (laughs) maybe they just don't care. So it really is sort of about feminism as a label. All right, why don't we take a break here uh, for some ads, and we'll be back in a moment. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin, and I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule, essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry-leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry-leading sustainability standards. You know I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump, and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long, and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess, is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Uh, Okay. So you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. Welcome back to Everything is Fine. We've arrived at the portion of the show where we talk about Taylor Swift. (laughs) Is it a good thing that celebrities like Taylor Swift and Beyonce seem to embrace feminism? And do you think the message is coming through with their audiences or to their audiences? I mean, I I think they're two very different examples of, Mm. you know, an embrace of feminism. And as someone who grew up in the 80s where celebrities would, you know, rather go out without makeup on than admit to being a feminist. It is actually kind of amazing to 
live in a time and see the way that celebrities are happy to embrace feminism. So just Mm. on an optical level, that's good because if young people whose first exposure to feminism is Taylor Swift talking about it or Beyonce at the MTV Video Music Awards with the neon letters behind her, they're getting a, a positive first exposure as opposed to what a lot of us got, which was, you know, these are angry women who um, wear acid-washed vests and want to castrate <laughs> men. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's, there's a lot to, to be Brad said Brennan. for that. Yeah. <laughs> that was a little too on point. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> I have a couple of pairs of pants that I call my second wave pants just because they seem very, like, they're sort of big. They're not really bell bottoms, but they're, you know, you could see them in the mm-hmm. 70s. Mm-hmm. What do you think the greatest enemy is to feminism right now in the U.S.? Oh, my God. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing is I don't, I don't think there's just one. Uh, but certainly, to be really frank, it's the same enemy that it's always been, which is, you know, white male fragility and inability to cede power or to, you know, see women with independence and ideas as anything more than a threat to what they believe to be the natural order. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It's really interesting how reluctant mainstream corporate feminism has been to really say, like, you know what, we have to talk about the fact that these men are actually the problem. You know, Mm -hmm. women in many ways are still taught to internalize so much of their failures to do it all or their the fact that they have a difficult time balancing their career and, and their personal lives. But so much of that really is because things like the balance of domestic labor, for instance, like the actual chores done by men versus those done by women in heterosexual partnerships, those are still incredibly unequal. We still have a lot of proof that you know married heterosexual men say they want to marry a successful woman, but when that woman becomes successful in a way that makes them nervous or feel small, all of a sudden they don't want that. Yep, you just you described know, my marriage. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I do think there's a way in which mainstream feminism has spent a lot of time trying to get men to embrace feminism without directly confronting the sort of material realities that allow men to keep women where they are, even inadvertently. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's like some grand plot all the time. I don't think there's like a bunch of men sitting in a boardroom. I mean, certainly there are a bunch of old white men sitting in rooms in (laughs) the Capitol (laughs) discussing, you know, how they can better, you know, confine women to the home barefoot and pregnant. But, you know, I think there are a lot of, there are a lot of men out there who do think that they are feminist and are supporting women. And it doesn't mean that they're not. It just means that there's a lot of stuff that they don't see And thus, they don't realize that it's something that is on them to change, you know? 
Well, it's been really disheartening in the pandemic to read all these studies and, and reports on how many women are leaving the workforce because they have to take care of their children and their schooling and because kids are at home doing Zoom school and somebody has to supervise and be there and that it's majority women. But I will say what is encouraging is how much I find at least it's being talked about um, and that yeah. there is an awareness. And when you bring it up to people, it's not like their eyes glaze over and they don't know what you're talking about. I'm talking about men. Like there is an awareness yeah. on some level. And I feel like that is some kind of progress. I think that's true. And I think a lot of that does come out of social media and the way that social media has driven a lot of these conversations in ways that, for instance, articles in the New York Times magazine never have. Right. Um, because on social media, it's, it's people sharing, it's people talking about their own experiences and realizing that these are experiences that are shared and these are experiences that they're inconvenient to discuss in a lot of the usual forums. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, I always want to... I feel like this is so depressing. Like, I feel I like know. I'm being such well, a huge bummer. <laughs> well, I'm, that was what I was trying to say was I'm looking for an uplifting way to end this, but it feels like these are bleak times. And so it's hard to find like, what are the top things we should be doing? Or what, what you know, how should people be thinking about that? I, I don't know even how to reframe it as a positive end. There is yeah. no positive end. Uh, I, I, yeah, I think that's the problem is that um, there's we're, it, we're in like a confluence of, of terrible things that are really magnifying existing inequalities that have always been there um, and really making them unignorable. And unfortunately, these are real world things that are um, changing people's lives. So, you know... I'm happy to talk about like beauty products or something because honestly, <laughs> I think there's very there's very few things that I can talk about these days without you know going to that sort of um, dark and hopeless place. Well, if you want to share your favorite beauty products with us, Andy, <laughs> we there is a certain part of our audience that really wants to hear what your number one beauty product is, and the others. Uh, this is the end of the show. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I actually have a favorite beauty product, but um, I, I feel like I've always ha- had more interest in that kind of stuff than people might think, and, uh, and no one ever asked me about it, and it's weird <laughs> to talk about, you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. it's sort of like, mm. it, it's not really a part of my daily life, but I also, I don't like to perpetuate the idea that, you know, if you're a feminist, you don't care about how you look or, or things like that. You know, I've been struggling for like two years about whether I should start dyeing my hair. I also wanted to say that I like the way that millennials, the ones who are nearing 40 even, have <laughs> um, reframed this part of the conversation um, towards self-care and how that is a little bit of something that you're doing for yourself to keep yourself sane and to work on your mental health. So it doesn't seem as frivolous. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's true. And again, I, I really think that that's something that that happens when um, people themselves start having these conversations and driving the subject matter rather than sort of being told what they should be caring about. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we all contain multitudes. I don't know why that continually surprises so many people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So lay it on us. Oh, well, so I think Kim might have said this on a recent podcast, but I am also the person who puts on lipstick mindlessly (laughs) and then goes out wearing a mask 
<laughs> and then has like this giant smudge in the mask, but also across my face. Um, <laughs> you guys are in good company. I read that Isabella Rossellini does that too. I read oh, that well, too. That yeah. does make me feel better. And that like, that's what I love about her. Like she will absolutely just have no problem saying that. Yeah. But I discovered um, these lip tints that are really good and oh talk um, to me i love lip tints yeah i don't even know how i found about out about this website but um there's this website that you know is is mostly like korean beauty products like k beauty um mm. and lip tints are apparently huge there they still smudge a little but nothing like lipstick so i feel like but they also look really are, natural they do i mean as an incredibly like an almost translucently pale person I can't mm -hmm. really wear super dark shades, but I love them. So I'm lip tints, you. actually, they work. And I don't know. You know, I, I do think <laughs> I do think we all do need like a little spot of glamour sometimes, yeah. especially now. I am totally Googling lip tints when we get off the phone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I just want to say as a frightfully pale person, not that you said you're frightfully pale, but I think of myself oh, as no, frightfully I am. I pale. Am. Um, <laughs> I just bought this thing recommended by a friend, Hylia, that is the ordinary, and it's some kind of glow stuff, and it's, I don't know, a fermented something natural-ish product, and it's kind of like a bronzer, but it's not as ridiculous as a bronzer. It's a very subtle product that makes me feel a tiny bit less pale and has actually made me feel really nice. Aww. Oh, that's great. Yeah. There yeah. we ended on a we ended on a, a there we go that's that's what we needed yeah the only absolutely. way to do it the only way to do it was not talk about current events <laughs> right now that's all that's what it's about it's yeah escapism you know yeah so Andy where do you want people to find you after this I'm always on Twitter I think that's where I'm sort of the most active for better or worse. Um, but, you know, I also encourage people to, to go to bitchmedia.org. Andy, thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. This was really fun. I don't feel depressed. I'm okay. okay Me good. too. Good. I will, I'll still worry about it, but. Um. <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> really All don't. right. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 